right then, good. All right, I'm pressing the go live button. And we are in theory live. Now, whenever I uh, start the show, I always make the joke that we require some kind of external uh, view to confirm our existence. But but this time, I think our conversation will probably include topics that, that relate to this. So, uh, Ken, how's it going? Pretty good. Uh, so for people who, who don't know who you are, uh, who are you? What do you do? I'm Ken Olam. I'm a research professor at the Tufts Institute of Cosmology. Uh, I study cosmic strings. I study inflation, philosophical issues connected with inflation, uh, and a bunch of other things. Recently, I joined the Nanograv collaboration where we study gravitational waves by timing pulsars. Awesome. Um, the, the philosophical implications of, of inflation? What, what, what's the philosophy of inflation? Well, the problem is it's not the philosophy of inflation, but that if you have eternal inflation, you end up with an infinitely large universe. And this gives us very deep philosophical problems that we don't know what to deal with, how what? to deal with. Uh, hit me with them. I, I would love to hear this. Maybe we can, we so, can puzzle them out uh, right now. Um, all right. So if the universe is infinitely large, then anything that can happen will happen. Right. Um, and so... We exist here. There will be other copies of us in vastly distant places, an infinite number of them, mm -hmm. um, and all possible variations, too. So there's another world, an infinite number of other worlds, where um, you and I are having this exact same conversation, and also many more worlds where we're having very slightly different conversations or... Uh, you know, we're having the same conversation, except that little things are different because my name is Tom instead of Ken, whatever. Right. Um, there's many more ways for things to be different than there are for them to be the same. And, and we've I mean, I've, I've brought this up and, and actually done several videos on the, on this idea, just this idea that, that in any, say, cubic meter of space, you're going to have a, a finite amount of quantum information. And in an infinite universe, this finite information will be replicated an infinite number of times. Yep, that's and, exactly right. And so whatever is possible that can exist will exist an infinite number of times and every variation thereof. Right. It's kind of a generalization of Murphy's Law. Right. <laughs> but I love that. That's awesome. Yeah, and the can go wrong, will go wrong, and everything like right can go right, everything. That's right. Um, so then, I mean, it's bizarre and troubling and obviously you know when you think about an infinite universe what is the philosophical problem of it well so what you would like to do is to say something about the probabilities for things so of course there's all these copies of us and um some of them are going to have different things happen to them than others so um you know some of us will finish our interviews some of us, the Earth will be hit by an asteroid before that happens. Uh, you know, most of the time, um, if I walk outside after this, everything will be fine, but sometimes I'm gonna be hit by a truck. And I'd like to know how these things, how common these things are, but there's a problem. I already snuck in something that didn't make too much sense. I said, there are more versions of us that are slightly different than those that are the same, but what does it mean more? There are an infinite number of them. 
infinite number of copies of me are going to be hit by a truck in an hour. Mm -hmm. Infinite number of copies of me are not. So what am I talking about? But aren't there I, different sizes of, of infinity? There are different sizes of infinity, but these are not them. Okay. All right. So these are all countable infinities. You can make a one-to-one -one correspondence between the versions of me that will be hit by a truck and the versions of me that won't. Um, you could think of this uh, like the question of, uh, uh, are there more, what, what fraction of the integers are even? Um, well, everybody would say a half, but on the other hand, for every integer, there's an even integer, which is twice that one. So, or I could count them in some funny way, right? I could say, let me count one, two, four. Now I'll put in three. Now six and eight. Look, there's twice as many even ones. It's not a well-defined question. So we need some philosophical plan that gets us out of this, that gets us away from this nonsense about, it sounds like everything is equally likely because um, it's an infinite number of everything, back to some things are common and some things are rare. Right. And I guess is the is the goal here to try to loop back around to consider our own existence to say, is there some, are, are we rare or are we common in having this conversation and not getting hit by trucks? That's right. Um, more importantly, from my point of view, um, what should we expect as astronomers if we look out into the universe? We see certain things we'd like to know what we should expect to see next. We'd like to know whether the things that we see are expected or very unusual. Um, and so you got to know what's likely. Of course, there's different theories of physics. You'd like to know which one is right based on your observations. In order to do that, you got to predict what um, what the is going to happen based on some theory. So for example, we built a big particle accelerator, the LHC, and we found many uh, collisions in there, which seemed to be caused by the existence of a Higgs particle. So they said, well, okay, we've discovered the Higgs, but how do you know? Maybe there's no Higgs and all those things just happen by chance. Right. Uh, because anything that can happen is gonna happen somewhere. So we just live in the funny corner of the universe where we got fooled. Right. And, and I guess, I mean, we have this situation coming up again with the muon G minus two experiment. And I guess this, this is encapsulated by this idea of sigma. And so with the muon G minus two, that's like 4.2 sigma, meaning it's like a one in, I forget what it is, like 10,000 chance that, that this isn't, or that it, that it is random. Um, and with Higgs, they're at like six sigma and beyond. And, right. and that's we, when they think it's almost for sure not random, but it still could be random. But we know that even if there's no extra physics, which is causing the G minus two anomaly, it could just be bad luck. Mm -hmm. And you say, well, but okay, but the, the bad luck would happen only one in 10,000 times, only one in 100,000 times, whatever. Um, but how do you know that? It's happening, it, it's happening for certain. Mm -hmm. There are absolutely, if there's an infinite universe, there are civilizations which have bad luck, which are confused about particle physics because their experiments are telling them lies by chance. And so in order to say that it's not likely, so we know it's certain that some civilizations like that exist. You want to say it's not likely that our civilization is one of those, but we know there are an infinite number that are fooled, mm -hmm. an infinite number that are not fooled, the same kind of infinity. 
So what do you do? You need what's called a measure, some way of assigning probabilities to these infinite sets. You need some kind of procedure. So for example, in a universe which is infinite and uniform, so it's just like you know infinite space, it just goes on forever. There's a pretty simple plan that usually works. So let's just take a big sphere and let's count only the things that take place inside the big sphere. So, you know, there's 10,000 of this inside the sphere. There's only one of that. So the thing which there's 10,000, it's much more likely. Now let's just keep making this sphere bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, uh, but always finite. Mm -hmm. You can make it as large as you want and you'll still get if something is more common in the normal sense, there'll be more copies of it. Right. So you can say probability is just frequency inside a gigantic sphere. And if the if the probabilities approach smooth limits as the sphere gets bigger, then everything is fine. So it's a simple idea to solve this problem in a particular case. And so I guess like an analogy would be like, like we believe that thanks to the laws of gravity, planets are you know, are spherical, but it could also just be completely random chance that all of the elements, all of the matter in the entire observable universe has organized itself into these shapes. And it's a very rare fraction, but the, the larger this sphere goes, the more of these spherical planets you find, the more your, your laws of physics explanation starts to approach one. That's right, right. That's, if you just had one, you wouldn't know what it was. But if you have a huge number, and they're dominated by one thing. And you can make this as large as you want. Uh, the problem is it doesn't work when you're trying to analyze different types of regions in the universe that are not comparable or different universes in the multiverse, you might say. Um, so here's some part of the multiverse, it's infinitely large. And the cosmological constant is what we have. Here's another part where the cosmological constant is twice what we have. Well, which of those is more likely? Well, now this plan doesn't work because they're all infinite universes. You can take where we are, you can make this sphere, you can make it as big as you want. You'll never get outside of our part of the multiverse. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, there's other parts where the constants are different, maybe, we don't know. So we need some better plan for comparing it. And it is very difficult to come up with a good philosophically motivated idea. Uh, you know, what we'd like is for philosophy to tell us like, this is the right thing to do. This is the thing that it makes sense to do. Um, instead, all we have is various ideas and some of them give ridiculous answers. So we know those are wrong. Mm -hmm. Some of them give answers that seem at least sort of vaguely credible, but there is an argument uh, that I made in a paper that really you can never do this right. There's always going to be some kind of paradoxical answer. And um, I don't know what to do about that. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, I, I mean, at this point, I think astronomers just go with this idea of, of homogeneity that and the Copernican principle that that we don't exist in a special place in the universe that everything is kind of the same no matter where you go and it's the only way you can make any kind of productive headway and I guess yeah there is a chance that you're operating in a in a very rare portion of the universe where the laws of physics exist in the way they do but but I mean you know you mentioned the cosmological constant but but in fact astronomers don't agree 
on the cosmological constant and the error bars don't overlap. So, I mean, is that a hint that that things might be a little weirder than we were expecting? Um, you're concerned about the Hubble. The Hubble constant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, uh, I don't think so. I mean, what it's a hint of, I don't know. Um, it seems fairly likely that it's a hint of some kind of physics that we don't understand. Um, and that's very important. There are probably a thousand papers, each author explaining why their own <laughs> idea is the right solution to this problem. Um, especially if they had the idea beforehand and then this conflict came up and they said, ah, oh, look, I know I had this idea long ago, but there's hundreds of ideas. Um, uh, it, it's difficult to get any detailed information to try to vet all these ideas. So um, it's also possible that it's just mistakes in measurement. Mm -hmm. Of course. Um, and of course, it's possible that it's just some kind of weird chance effect, cosmic variance. Um, probably not. Um, and if you asked me, the sense I have is that these people probably don't know what they're doing. I mean, I'm not the one who's making these measurements, but um, I would say it's likely that there is indeed some new physics. And what that new physics is, we really have no idea. People have tried to categorize the possibilities and there isn't any great idea. This, this conflict doesn't point at a clear solution like, aha, we've discovered, you know, it has to be this. We don't know what it is, but there's something probably that's going on. But I, but I guess what I was, was wondering, you know, that's just one example of a, of a measurement at the vastest scales, which is starting to show discrepancies that might then give you a hint in how to resolve your philosophical conundrum that you could, you know, give well, you it would approach. be nice, but this is not, of course, at the vastest scales. It's at the biggest scales that we can observe. But <laughs> right, those are tiny compared to the whole universe, most likely. I mean, we don't know this either. Some people think, well, there was just enough inflation to make the size of the universe that we have. But most models of inflation are eternal, meaning they make an infinitely large universe and they make an infinite number of every kind of universe. And we can't observe those at all. We won't be able to. So we can learn about the laws of physics by observing the universe we have. We can learn what the predictions of the laws of physics are uh, for the part we cannot observe and we could try to make sense of it all, but uh, it is a difficult problem, which I think needs both advances in physics and advances in philosophy to figure out what we're doing and what we should be doing. What do you think is the, is the best approach that we could try to get a sense of the true size of the universe, whether it, you know, we know it's bigger than 96 billion light years, but we don't know how much bigger. So the only thing we can do is to figure out what the process was that produced the universe that we have and to see by, uh, by analysis what size of universe that process would have produced. So we think it's inflation. Inflation solves many puzzles. It, uh, it does a good job of explaining the universe that we have. Um, we don't have anything which is really a smoking gun that says that it's inflation. There's one measurement, which is that the spectral tilt of the primordial perturbations is 0.96. It's clearly bounded away from one. 
And so if it were near one, you would say, well, forget inflation. Let me just like think of the simplest thing I could possibly put in for a recipe for the universe. It's going to give one. So we don't have that. We have something less than one. Many models of inflation do give something less than one. It tells us something about inflation. We would like to have very detailed information about that went into this 0.96, we'd like to get much more information of the same kind by studying the structures of the universe on all different scales very, very precisely. We would like to reconstruct the inflationary potential, the, the nature of the field that led to inflation. And then we could know what this did as the universe was growing very fast at the very beginning. This is a really tough measurement to do. And of course, you can also try to do it by coming up with theories, but the problem there is that there are too many of them. It's easy to speculate. Lots and lots of suggestions have been made. We need data to separate the suggestions and the data is hard to get. It requires knowing how fast the universe was expanding um, at very, very early times. It involves knowing the size of the primordial perturbations that became the galaxies and the structures that we see with extremely high precision. So uh, this is a tough thing and we measure it as best we can. We'll have better measurements in the future, but it's gonna be a long struggle to get the detail of measurement to try to really reconstruct what was going on in inflation. But that's the only way except, you know, some brilliant theoretical advance that somehow you say, well, there's one theory of everything. This is the right theory by just pure thought. I've invented, I figured out the only theory it has to be. So people for a while thought that was string theory. Uh, I've, string got a, theory. I've got a bunch of emails that have come in, probably even just today, that have proposed the the theory of everything. So if you want, I could just pass them all along to you. Yeah, I get many of these emails. Yeah. <laughs> right. um, you know, so people thought it was string theory. And uh, there's a lot of reasons you might believe in string theory. It's, it's, it has some impressive accomplishments. Uh, but then they discover this problem of the string landscape in which there are vast numbers of compactifications of string theory, huge numbers of ways in which a universe, uh, a, a, a model, a standard model, laws of physics like ours could be embedded in string theory. And then string theory kind of lost its predictive value. So even if you're a string theorist and you're convinced that string theory is right, this still doesn't allow you to say, like, how did the universe inflate? Because there are too many ways. Mm -hmm. So um, that was disappointing to many people. It seems to be correct. And uh, so now we're back where we were. We can only find out by precision measurements that are very hard to do. What is the method that gets you at that 0.96? What is the actual observation that's made? Uh, so this is done by um, measuring the details of the uh, fluctuations in the cosmic microwave background. So you get um, this extremely beautiful curve of the microwave background fluctuation power um, as a function of angular scale. And it kind of goes like this. It has a bunch of little wiggles. I think they've seen about 11 of these little wiggles now done by the Planck satellite, by balloon experiments, by things at the South Pole, lots of different uh, experiments have contributed together to give you this thing. And then you see, what would this be with various models of how the universe developed? And you fit those models to the data that you see. 
And now you can tune model parameters and see whether they fit or don't. And that's how we learn what we have learned about this kind of thing. And then what, you know, you said that, that better observations, better techniques would, will be required. So what kinds of observations would you like to be able to make to be able to get more progress into trying to sense what, what happened right at the beginning of the universe? So I think the thing which is likely to give us the best progress about this um, that we can foresee is probably 21 centimeter measurements. So mm -hmm. 21 centimeters is the uh, uh, spin uh, flip transition of hydrogen and it measures something about the density of hydrogen clouds at early times in the universe. It is a little bit like the cosmic microwave background, except the cosmic microwave background is two-dimensional. It's like you're sitting at the center of the sphere of the sky, and what you see is the projection of uh, all that stuff, the temperature of the cosmic microwave background at the time of recombination when the universe was 300,000 years old or whatever it was. So not exactly an instant in time, but basically a short period of time. You look back in the universe in any direction. So what you see is like you're at the inside of a sphere and the sphere is colored in different colors based on the microwave background temperature and all those maps are just that sphere unrolled uh, until something flat so you can see it. 21 centimeters should tell us this same information in a three-dimensional way. Hmm. So it will tell us the temperature in a certain kind of the universe in three dimensions at a, a sort of a snapshot at the past. So there's much more information there because it's three-dimensional information rather than two-dimensional information. So that will tell us a whole lot about what the universe was doing at certain times in the past from which this information can be gathered. That's really interesting. I'd never, I'd never sort of considered it from that, from that perspective. You know, with the cosmic microwave background, we're seeing every second that goes by, we're just seeing the birth pangs of a larger sphere of the universe around us. But with the 21 centimeter line, we're actually seeing these blobs of primordial hydrogen in their various shapes three-dimensionally. Right. It's sort of a snapshot of a certain time, three-dimensional structure at a certain time. So there'll be a lot more bits there, a lot more data. Um, I don't know. I'm not an expert on exactly what can be derived from that data. What's the machine that's going to get us there? What's the instrument? Um, so there are a lot of um, these 21 centimeter observing systems. One is ALMA. Um, um, one is CHIME in Canada. Um, I don't, again, I don't know exactly the capabilities right. yeah. of these instruments. This is a big project to see through a lot of foreground noise and figure out how to gather this huge amount of information which is out there. Um, the information in the cosmic microwave background we've mostly gathered. Uh, there's not that much. I mean, there's there's a set of experiments called CMBS4, um, which are going to be the next, like the successors to Planck, to observe the whole sky and look at the cosmic microwave background. But um, that's going to be about it for the information that we can get. And the problem is cosmic variance. Mm -hmm. What you're seeing is a chance process. And it's like you're trying to figure out um, whether uh, a die is a fair die whether it comes up 
six more often than the other numbers. Well, what you'd like to do is to roll this large number of times and count the sixes. But the situation, we, we aren't rolling the die, we're only observing the rolls. And there's a finite number of observations that we can make. And so uh, you, there's, it's not like particle physics. Particle physics, you say, well, you know, I did this and I discovered the top quark maybe, but only at three sigma. So let's do a lot more experiments. Here, you've, when you do the observations, you've do, done them all. There's no new universes to observe. Right. So there isn't any way to roll the dice again. Um, so that limits what we can do. And therefore it's important to have a set of new observations, which are kind of like new rolls of the same dice um, that we can observe with different techniques. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. This idea of cosmic variance that that we're literally we have done. We are about to do the best possible observation of the cosmic microwave background that can that we can do under the laws of physics. No matter how good of a telescope we could make, we pretty much couldn't glean any more information. The problem is that is that the actual beginning of the universe is obscured by. 300,000 plus years of of opaque hot gas. Um, what about going to gravitational waves, primordial gravitational waves? Would that get you some of the data that you need? So you can certainly get a lot of things in primordial gravitational waves. Uh, if the gravitational waves left over from inflation can be observed, then we're going to learn a lot. And of course, we thought we had observed them. There was this big yes. foofer with bicep. Everybody got very excited, but it turned out to be wrong. Um, the problem with that is that this depends very sensitively on the scale of inflation. So if the energy scale of inflation is high, these waves will be observed. But as the energy scale of inflation is somewhat lower, the gravitational waves are much weaker. And we don't know what it is. And it doesn't have to be that much lower before they're just so weak that there's no hope. So yes, it's a great thing if, it, if we're lucky. If we're lucky that the gravitational waves are there because the inflation scale is very high, that would be super useful. But otherwise, um, the information just is not observable. Right. Um, all right, so now, and I, I, taught me if I'm not understanding this correctly, but in your most recent paper, you talk about this idea of Boltzmann brains and there being an actual limit. And so allow me to uh, stop me whenever I mess this up. But but my understanding is, is that, of course, thanks to quantum mechanics, particles can reformulate themselves in, in various ways, uh, depending on you know random probability. And so one of the weird philosophical issues is, what if you get to this point where, where atoms are reconfiguring themselves in a way that you're creating essentially conscious entities that are able to observe things, which, gets kind of weird if you require some kind of observation to say collapse the wave uh, function of of some particle that you're well, literally getting. The collapsing the wave function part. Um, Even just the existence of conscious entities appearing at random. The problem. Yeah. the problem isn't the the general existence of conscious entities. The problem is the existence of copies of us. Mm -hmm. um, they could be anomalous copies of us in the sense that they aren't people at all. What they are is computers, some kind of little computers, very fast, that can um, uh, somehow simulate our brains. So, you know, I think that if you had a computer that could do a very, very accurate simulation of your brains, like all the neurons in your brain, and uh, 
it would do exactly what you do. There would be a one-to-one -one correspondence between some data structures in his computer and neurons in your brain. And when the neuron in your brain would fire, the data structure would do something. Uh, that that computer, and it would be you know connected to some simulated uh, uh, body, so you could uh, it could observe and it could act. Um, that computer <clears throat> would be just like us. It would have the same thoughts that we would have, and it would have the same subjective experience that we would have. So just as we don't know if we're us in one Earth or us in some other Earth at a vast distance apart, we could also be this computer which is simulating us instead of us. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, we don't know because the computer's experiences would be the same as our experiences. Now the problem is, what if this, what if either like an actual human body, which is exactly my body, or a computer, which is doing a great job of simulating me, appeared in outer space by itself as a quantum fluctuation, then I would know if I am whoops. We might have gotten a uh, problem with his. Oh, there, there we go. There we go. Okay, sorry, we lost you for a second there. Okay, you're back. Okay. Oh, sorry. You know, I guess there's maybe some network problem. Yeah, I think you're you're back. You're okay now. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so Boltzmann brains, uh, brains or humans or the whole Earth or a computer that simulates you, any of those things. Right. Hearing as a quantum fluctuation. And now you would say, this is like just unbelievably unlikely. Like, how unlikely is it to have just a bunch of empty space with a tiny amount of energy in it somehow fluctuate to make a human being? Well, of course, it's really tiny, so it would never happen. You wouldn't worry about it. Except that there is an infinite amount right. of empty space. And so the concern is... If we just take our universe and we look in the very, very, very distant future, let's suppose the cosmological constant really is a cosmological constant. It won't change. Well, eventually everything in the universe will cool off and all the stars will go out and all the protons will decay and all the black holes will evaporate. The universe will go on forever. Well, forever is a long time. And during that time, no matter how small the chances that a person might fluctuate, there will be a lot more people appearing by these fluctuations that actual human beings living on earth today. Yes. And so by the general calculation that if there's a lot of one kind of you and a small number of another kind of you, you should expect to be in the large group, we should all expect to be Boltzmann brains. Right. So I mean, course, this is almost like the simulation argument, but made for Boltzmann brains. That's right. Yeah. And of course this is nonsense because once you're a Boltzmann brain, then most likely, all the memories that you have are false. Those things never really happened to you. Your brain just kind of fluctuated into a state of having those memories. And all the knowledge that you learned in the past about the laws of physics in the universe, the laws of physics with which we use to derive the existence of Boltzmann brains are wrong. <laughs> There's no reason to think that that's, those are the real laws of physics. Those are just the laws of physics that by chance happen to fluctuate in existence in your brain. So this is called cognitive instability. 
if you start with a belief in the laws of physics as we have observed them, and as we've learned them through all our experience, you conclude that you're a Boltzmann brain who actually has no idea what the laws of physics are. Right. Okay, so this is a disaster. And it would be better to have uh, theories which don't uh, allow for domination by Boltzmann brains, don't lead to the conclusion that we are more likely to be Boltzmann brains. Right. Uh, so... So that's interesting because that's that's kind of a, a, even a more meta issue. So, uh, you know, my understanding of the philosophical problem of Boltzmann brains was more about the need to have an observer for some kind of quantum event. And so how can a quantum event create the observer? That's a paradox. So, but, so I don't think observers are necessary for quantum events. And, and, I, and I don't think that's necessarily the consensus, but sort of fairly early on, that was the idea was was just that, you know, if, you know, with, say, quantum entanglement, that you only get one outcome when you observe the particle going through, say, the double slit experiment or, or whatever. Um, but what you're saying is that even our belief that the that a you know the double split slit experiment or something you know Schrodinger's cat requires an observer could literally just be an understanding of the laws of physics implanted into the mind of a Boltzmann brain that that has just appeared a nanosecond ago and it's not that's real. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's exactly right. Um, so <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, the, I love it. Yeah, there's no. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. Um, so, you know, you could consider. Um, it's the sort of vaguely related to the problem of solipsism. You could imagine, well, how do I know anything exists at all? Um, I'm, you know, I'm just a brain in a vat. Um, no other people actually exist. The external world doesn't exist at all. And okay, like I can't, you know, I can't talk you out of that position, but you, it's also a coherent position to think that the real world really does exist. And if you think that you're a brain in the vat and everything's random, then you're not going to have a very good life because you can't make any decision. There's no basis to make any choice at all. It's a completely sterile view. So let's just put it aside, not because we're able to say that it's wrong due to some argument, but because it could be right, but you can go nowhere. Mm -hmm. The Boltzmann brains is a little bit like this, but it's worse. <laughs> because if you start to say, uh, well, you know, I could be a Boltzmann brain or I could be a regular observer, then... Uh, if I'm a Boltzmann brain, then probably I'm just going to evaporate in the next second, and there's no point in doing anything. So, okay, fine. Um, it's just like solipsism. Let me put that, that idea aside. Let me go back to the idea that I'm a regular observer. What are the consequences of um, being a regular observer? Uh, uh, okay, that means that my observations are right. They get the laws of physics. I do the calculations based on the laws of physics. I figure out what they mean. Oh, my God, they mean I'm a Boltzmann brain. So it's not living in a simulation, a Boltzmann brain living in a simulation. Yeah. Not just that I can't choose between being a brain in a vat versus not. The problem is when I choose not, when I choose, well, let me investigate the consequences of not being a Boltzmann brain. The consequence is that I am a Boltzmann brain. Right. So these theories of physics are nonsense. Um, they, we can't make any, we can't live with this kind of theory of physics. So, of course, what we hope is that. That's not the right theory of physics. Right. Um, right. We hope that that when we discover the right theory of physics, it won't be one that leads to Boltzmann brains. 
And so you propose a mechanism that could be fighting in the opposite direction at a rate that is faster than Boltzmann brains appearing in the universe. That's right. Um, and this is not, um, this idea is not really a new idea. Um, our paper just um, points out um, some additional things that one has to take into account when one does this. Uh, and uh, the, so again, this depends on the choice of a measure in eternal inflation. We chose something called the scale factor measure. Um, why the scale factor measure is the right measure, I don't have any idea. Um, it is at least a measure that works. It doesn't give crazy answers, pretty much. Um, I mean, all measures are paradoxical, but this, at least many things work out okay. And there are a number of other ideas for measures that give something similar to the scale factor measure. In the scale factor measure, you could do a calculation of how to determine whether Boltzmann brains are dominant or whether ordinary observers are dominant, which should you expect to be? And the answer is what you've got to do is to compare the Boltzmann brain formation rate with the vacuum decay rate, the possibility that your inflating vacuum can turn into anything else. So it could turn into a different kind of vacuum. And this is how the, all the different possibilities in the landscape get filled up. And the thing that we discuss is that it could also turn into a black hole. Mm -hmm. And when you count the rate of black hole production in this vacuum decay rate, and you compare with the rate of Boltzmann brain production, you discover that basically the chance of producing some little object in an inflating universe, in a, a slowly expanding, but inflating still universe, uh, like ours would be after all the matter had been diluted away. Um, the chance just depends on the mass of the object. So the more massive the object is, the harder it is to make it. Mm -hmm. So there's some minimum mass for a Boltzmann brain. We don't know what it is. For an actual brain, it's like the mass of a brain. Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, like your brain isn't going to live for very long without your body. So maybe the mass of your body. Okay. So at least several kilograms. Um, for a black hole, it's the smallest black hole, which is something around the Planck mass, about 20 micrograms. So since that mass is much less, the decay rate into black holes is much larger than the rate of making actual brains. So this solves the problem as long as the Boltzmann brain is, the minimum mass of Boltzmann brain is at least as massive as the Planck mass. And now you can ask the question, well, okay, for a brain, it's certainly true. What about the smallest computer that could ever simulate a brain? And we don't know. Mm -hmm. I'm working with my student, Param, with whom I did that. That was one of the authors with me on that paper on exactly this question about like, what is the minimum mass of a computer? But this is, it's really all speculation. It is at least not an unreasonable speculation that you can't make a computer that can simulate a human brain and whose mass is less than 20 micrograms because a human brain has an awful lot of data stored in it. And it's not clear how much you can miniaturize the computer. So if that's true, then our argument tells you that the, because the black hole production rate is higher than the brain, Boltzmann brain production rate, uh, that there's going to be more ordinary observers than Boltzmann brains and we don't have to worry. Um, why can't you have both? Why can't you have both black holes forming and 
bolts and brains forming just in well you can um, and then of course you should compare the number of black holes and the number of Boltzmann brains but in this business all the numbers are enormous so if you look at the chance of uh, the brain forming it's e to the minus 10 to the some big number and if you look at the chance of the black hole forming, it's e to the minus 10 to the some other big number, and that number is not as big. So, um, uh, so these numbers, uh, so the result is that the, the black holes are more likely. And these numbers are also huge that any little change in anything makes the enormous number different from another enormous number by an incredibly huge effect. So it's like if I have uh, 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 you know, a billion, it's much larger than a million by a factor of a thousand. So it's 10 to the three. If my number is um, a million digits long versus two million digits long, those numbers are enormously different. There's a million extra zeros. <laughs> yeah. All the numbers that we have are like that, only much worse. And so some, just some tiny thing. So if you ask, what's the chance of forming a black hole with two Planck masses versus a black hole of one Planck mass? Well, it's the question of the chance of forming one black hole, the one Planck mass black hole, and you have to square it to get the other thing. So this is already um, one chance in 10 to the 100, and the other one is one chance in 10 to the 200. They're vastly different. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's why you never are going to end up with like, well, gee, I'm not sure. You know, there's a lot of Boltzmann brains, a lot of black holes. Which one is dominant? And for similar reasons, we don't have to worry about the difference between a Boltzmann brain and a Boltzmann brain, which is my brain or your brain. Mm -hmm, of course, mm -hmm. that's much less likely than any random brain. It could be anybody's brain. And in fact, mostly it's a brain which is not thinking any coherent thought at all. But those changes are small as compared to the chance of, of producing any kind of brain at all. And so once you're with these in this range of super enormous numbers, uh, so that everything is just vastly unlikely, the sort of ordinary calculation of like, well, which thoughts are the brain thinking? Is it my thoughts or your thoughts? Those don't really make much difference. So the the idea of black holes, you know, one of the I guess the the handy side effects of of generating black holes in this infinite universe is that a black hole with the you know with this Planck scale mass is going to evaporate again and and disappear. Right. And again, sort of my impression from your paper was that you know you've got these you've got this pond and you're filling it up with. Um, on the one hand, bolts and brains, and on the other hand, you're emptying it back out with evaporating black holes. And as long as the evaporating black holes is going faster than the bolts and brains appearing, then then controversy is over. That's right. Both of these things are happening at a ludicrously slow rate. So I talked about this uh, big sphere that we might use in a spherical cutoff and taking the sphere to infinity. So the scale factor cutoff the cutoff is in how much expansion of the universe you allow before you reach the cutoff. So this amount of expansion, and again, what you do is you take a certain amount of expansion. So let me consider only the case where the universe has grown by a factor of a million. 
And then I'm going to not include any universes that have grown by more than that. And then I have a finite number of Boltzmann brains, a finite number of ordinary observers I compare. Then I take that limit uh, of a million times expansion. And uh, we give in the paper the size of number that you have to have. And it really is remarkably large. But the prescription says take this to infinity. Well, infinity is larger than any finite number, so that's okay. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> there is an incredibly slow process that once in a vast number of universes, there's one black hole of the Planck mass that lives for an infinitesimal fraction of a second and evaporates. And also once in a huge number of universes, there's a Boltzmann brain. And both those things happen, but the number of universes it takes before you have a Boltzmann brain is enormously larger than the number before you have a black hole, even though both of them are huge. So almost nothing ever happens. Universes grows, 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 huge numbers of universes are formed. Nothing ever happens. Very, very occasionally a black hole, even more occasionally a Boltzmann brain. The important thing is that the Boltzmann brain is less common. And so in this calculation, which I will not attempt to reproduce now, um, <laughs> the tiny, tiny amount of black holes nevertheless overwhelms the even tinier amount of Boltzmann brains and reduces the amount of space in the vacuum in which the Boltzmann brains can form so that they end up um, overwhelmed by ordinary observers who exist mostly in not the universe that formed long, long, long ago because it's gone out, essentially. It's just going on and on with nothing in it hardly, but rather by a whole lot of other universes that have formed recently by this same process of eternal inflation, which is always forming every kind of universe in the multiverse. So these recently formed uh, universes, which are still alive with stars and galaxies and people, those outweigh uh, the Boltzmann brains that formed in the big empty universes only because the volume in the big empty universes is depleted by these black holes. Now, if you run, I mean, the Boltzmann brains are are like is like the bare minimum to get to a point of of consciousness. But but you can scale up the quantum randomness to the point that you literally get an entirely new universe. You could get an, a whole new Big Bang. Does right. this does this idea of the black holes? You know, if if a if a Boltzmann brain is is uncommon compared to the number of black holes, is an entirely new universe but one that isn't a Boltzmann brain, that one is filled with actual observers, is that impacted as well? Are we cutting so, off the ability to have future universes at this point? So the important thing here is inflation. So if you just imagined uh, you and me and the earth and the solar system, say, forming as a fluctuation, that would be harder than just like forming one person. And uh, forming a whole galaxy would be harder yet. Forming, uh, you know, a, a billion galaxies would be harder yet. So those are not so interesting. Um, but what's interesting here is that if I form a new inflating universe, this will then go on forever to form its own infinite numbers of galaxies. Of It will be like its own sub-multiverse with everything in it, with all possible inflating universes in it, with all possible people, with all possible and Boltzmann brains too. Um, those are the things that matter here and they matter because they're so effective. Like if you say, well, 
I'm going to form a person. Okay, I'm going to form two people, and all I get for that is two people. Instead of one, it's vastly less likely. I'm going to form a whole earth populated with billions of people, even less likely, and all I get is a few billion. But when you make a new inflating universe, then you get an infinite number of everything. Right. So it really pays off. Um, and and so I guess it's it's like a seed versus creating a tree from individual atoms. Yes, I think that's a good way to say it. Right, right. Um, so we've got ab about 10 minutes left. And I don't know if we have enough time for this, but but sort of your main field of research or had been for the longest time is this idea of cosmic strings. What are they? So if you think of a cosmic string, what could it possibly be? You're going to think the right thing. Something which oh, is microphysically, <laughs> microphysically thin, astronomically long. Uh, so a tiny fraction of an inch across and you know, could be light years long, could stretch across the whole universe. Um, why might we have them? Um, they could be the strings of string theory stretched out very large due to inflationary models based on string theory. They could be topological defects in the vacuum. If you think about defects in a crystal, crystal could have a linear defect where the atoms don't line up. This is a sort of a similar thing, only it's caused by symmetry breaking in the quantum field theories in the early universe. And so they could have formed when the universe was forming in the Big Bang. And then um, they could, once they formed, we know what would happen. We've done lots of big simulations. There would be a network of strings, sort of a funny, not really a net, but uh, long strings that go on across the whole universe and loops. A whole distribution of loops, small loops, big loops, medium-sized loops. Um, there would be loops in our galaxy. There would be loops in intergalactic space. The loops would all be oscillating. Strings move around at the speed of light. So they'd be very, very massive objects moving very, very rapidly, and they would produce gravitational waves. Mm. And so what I've been doing recently is calculating the distribution of gravitational waves that come from strings. Because we are kind of on the edge of detecting the background of gravitational waves. Now, these would be, well, there are two kinds of things. There could be bursts of gravitational waves. So LIGO and Virgo have observed gravitational wave bursts that come from merging black holes and neutron stars. Uh, cosmic strings could emit those, but it seems that the best hope for detection is not that, but rather the stochastic background of gravitational waves, the noise uh, of all the loops in the entire universe, all oscillating in incoherent fashion, all emitting um, gravitational waves of their own, making just a sort of a noise that fills the whole universe. And Nanograv has observed something Mm -hmm. which may or may not be a gravitational wave background of this kind. I, I so, did see that, yeah, fairly recent. So what we've observed is um, uh, we can't say that this is a gravitational wave detection. It looks like some sort of a common noise process with a spectrum that we can put some fairly coarse limits on that. And the, the best evidence we have is that this is a common spectrum which affects all of the pulsars that we time all together in the same way. 
So that could be the first sign of a gravitational wave background, such as would be produced by cosmic strings. It could also be something else, um, which is why it's not the claim of a detection. Nevertheless, since we don't have a good idea what the other thing would be that it would be instead, um, it's you know an indication that this may be uh, a cosmic string uh, gravitational wave background, or far more likely, a gravitational wave background which comes from pairs of black holes at the centers of galaxies. So we know a source. So we don't need to attribute it to a source that we don't know exists, like cosmic strings. Nobody knows if they're cosmic strings or not. We have some reasons to think they might exist, but that's completely unknown. We do know that black holes are at the centers of galaxies. We know that galaxies merge. We infer that the black holes in the merging galaxies must fall down to the center and orbit each other for a while and produce gravitational waves. So those are likely the gravitational waves that the nanograv is seeing if what if the nanograv signal is in fact caused by a gravitational wave background. It's such a mind-bending idea that we're at the point with detecting gravitational waves that we're seeing this background gravitational wave radiation from all of the places where two supermassive black holes are orbiting around each other or caustic strings you know we're not gonna we're not gonna discount that today um so back to this idea of what's the machine what would what would get you a really nice answer to this question so um we have more data from the pulsars that we've been timing and we're processing that data now um, in addition there are other pulsar timing groups there's a European Pulsar Timing Array. There's one in Australia, which uses the Parkes Radio Telescope. There's an international Pulsar Timing collaboration that puts all these things together. So the first thing we need is more data. And we have some of it, so we need to process the data that we have. We need to gather more data. Part of it is just time. These gravitational waves that we're looking for have very long periods of the order of years. So the longer you wait, the longer you're paying attention to the same pulsar, the more information you can get out of it. We also need to find more pulsars. We need to time more of them. We need to time them more precisely. Um, eventually, we'll have this instrument called the Square Kilometer Array, um, which will contribute a lot of data to this field, but they haven't even started yet to build it. I'm kind of imagining these like buoys on the ocean, and you're just measuring with lasers or whatever, the distance to the buoys, and you're measuring them bobbing back and forth in all directions yeah. around you. But in this Good case, analogy. yeah, you're, it's pulsars and it's gravitational waves that are washing across these, these pulsars. And so it's, so it's not about your ability to measure the gravitational waves directly as they are, say, with, with LIGO. It's about your ability to just more precisely time the bobbing of the, of the pulsars as they as they as they spin it's a it's a phenomenal it's a phenomenal idea does it does it give you an ability to be more precise like like could you start to use it as a telescope or will it only just get you to there's a background there uh well you can't use it as a telescope and make pictures um but what we would really like to detect is um a specific source so maybe, so there's various pairs of gravitationally bound uh, black holes in the centers of galaxies. And, you know, one of those is the closest to us of all of them. And perhaps that one is loud enough in the gravitational wave sense 
that we could detect it. It would be a steady signal. Um, and so one of the things that we do is to search for that. Is there one signal that it's like if you're in a crowded room and lots of people are talking and all you hear is noise, but maybe if one person is talking close to you, you could try to make out what that person is saying over all the noise. That's the kind of thing that we'd like to be able to do. And that's a possible detection that might be made in the future. Or an island in my, in my ocean of, of buoys. That you're well, no, it's, it's more that one of the buoys is closer than the others. Mm -hmm. No, sorry. <clears throat> the buoys are, are where they are. It's that there's some sort of dominant wave pattern that's mm -hmm. going over all these buoys, right? There was a storm uh, 500 miles away. And now that storm is sending up big waves in a train of waves that are passing over all the buoys. What you'd like to do is to learn that that storm is there by seeing how the buoys get yeah. closer and further apart. Yeah, 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 perfect. Well, I was imagining waves reflecting off an island, but but absolutely, that sort of makes the same thing. Ken, uh, absolutely fascinating conversation. I, I really appreciate you sort of delving into the into both the philosophy and the the cosmology of this. If people want to follow your work, see what you're working on, where, where should they go? Um, well, I guess if they want to follow my papers, they should just um, read them on the Physics Preprint Archive. Um, I don't have any. <laughs> That's it. You, you, you communicate with the world through physics papers on, on archive and, and yeah, I think that's perfect. Basically the best thing to do. Yeah, no, I, I think that's the, I think that's like my favorite answer. You don't have a book. You just have a series of, of research papers that you've written. If someone wants to dig in, they can. Well, Ken, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. Good luck. Uh, I, the nanograv is, is and I, I sort of wish, I feel like I kind of buried the lead there because I have been following nanograv and I'm really excited. We've covered that quite a bit on Universe Today. And so I think the most accessible chunk of this conversation is actually the work that's being done with, with nanograv. And so I think people should, you know, if they're interested in this, in this question, they should absolutely take a look at it. But again, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. You're welcome. It's been fun. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.